today's episode, Gendered Space, with your co-host, Alicia Bjarnason. Welcome to Exclusion, a podcast that explores all things equity, diversity, and inclusion in the workplace. Brought to you by Canadian Equality Consulting and Biard Consulting. Hello, Marcy Hironic here. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Exclusion. Today, my co host Alicia Bjornison will be sharing research from her recent master's thesis focused on gendered spaces. So thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy. Hey, everyone. Alicia here. Thanks to Marcy for my introduction. Yes, this is my first solo podcast. And as mentioned, I will be discussing gendered space. This concept has been mentioned a few times throughout our podcast, But this is definitely a chance for me to expand on what it means and why it matters. And as Marcy mentioned, this topic was part of my master's thesis work through the geography department at the University of Calgary. Now, before jumping in, I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional territories and oil practices of the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta and Region 3 Métis Nation. All right, let's begin by actually taking a quick step back. Throughout this podcast, Marcy and I have given information about ourselves, but here's a bit more information and a bit more details about my own career journey. I am a professional geoscientist who has worked on resource plays from across North America and beyond. I'm still active in my geoscience community, including volunteering for my professional organization, APEGA. But a few years ago, I decided to go back to school to obtain a master's degree. I started in the geoscience department, but I took a class through the geography department called the Philosophy and Nature of Physical Geography. At the time, I had no idea how this was going to change my career direction. The class explored epistemological, metaphysical, and axiological issues, not just in geography, but in science in general. In summary, the class explored how we, as scientists, actually conduct science, from how internal biases can unintentionally affect our research, to the way we as scientists treat each other. As someone who had already been an active professional within the greater science community for around 15 years, I found this class quite fascinating. It led me to switching my master's to the geography department to study human geography with a specific focus on feminist geography, where gendered space played a key role in my research. So first, I would like to introduce you to feminist geography. Feminist geography is actually one of the largest and quickest growing specialties within the greater discipline of human geography. Gillian Rose explained it best. Feminist geography is an approach which applies the theories, methods, and critiques of feminism to the study of the human environment, society, and geographical space. Now, 
I define feminism as a belief in the social, political, and economical equality of the sexes. Linda McDowell, a prominent feminist geographer, explained that to do feminist geography means that looking at the actions and meanings of all gender people, not just women, investigating their histories, personalities, geographies, but also the meaning of places to them, at the different ways in which spaces are gendered, and how this affects people's understanding of themselves as women and men. I will expand on this in a moment. As you can imagine, this is not an approach often included in scientific research. Proving itself time and again to be a source of innovative thought and practice across all human geography. And within science in general, this research style and practice can sometimes be referred to as feminist science studies. And definitely this is not a concept that I was familiar with before going back to school. All right, let's move on to the topic of space. Now, when I say space, I mean the social construct of space. Okay, I think we need some more definitions. You know how we love our definitions here on the Exclusion Podcast. So what is a social construct, you say? Those that study social constructs define it as the meanings, notions, or connotations that are assigned to objects and events in the environment and to people's notions of the relationship to and, in, and interactions with these objects. In the domain of social constructionist thought, a social construct is an idea or notion that appears to be natural and obvious to people who accept it, but may or may not represent reality. It remains largely an invention or artificial component of a given society. Okay, <laughs> I know, I know, this is a hard concept to understand. But often space and the places they are in are used to construct a normative landscape. Spaces define what is right, just, appropriate here, but not there, and by whom. We will expand on this more, but to warm you up, spaces can be in a variety of geographical scales, from a one-on-one -on -one meeting, to a workplace, to an industry, to a country. It can be physical and conceptual. Now, if you remember in our podcast in episode five, we discussed the normalization of sexual violence in mass gatherings. How certain spaces can carry this perceived normalization of actions and our beliefs by some that would not be acceptable elsewhere. In fact, often these actions are not acceptable, period. But how these spaces can create this perceived notion that those actions are acceptable. If you have not heard this episode, I invite you to go back and listen. There is more than one type of social construct. For example, let's take race, as this too is often studied by social scientists as a social construct. This topic can be an issue because, as we as human beings make it so, and as human social beings, we bring ourselves into the social production of space, as spaces and places are produced and constructed in and through the systemic building blocks of society, such as economics, politics, and social structures, structures such as gender, which we will discuss in depth today, and through the actions of individuals and social agents, as we all navigate our everyday lives. By deconstructing the current norms, 
we can better understand how and why spaces and the places they are in are constructed. (laughs) Man, I really hope I haven't lost you here. Let's give the social construct of space a different name. Let's call it culture. We have all been part of a culture. In fact, I'm sure many of us are part of multiple cultures, even if we realize it or not. There is ethnic culture, religious culture, gendered culture. Families have their own individual cultures. No two are the same. Schools have their own cultures. And of course, so too do workplaces. Now, gender is a social construct. We have discussed this on the podcast in the past. Gender represents the way of talking, describing, and perceiving men and women. Often gender is considered a dichotomy, where being female and male are on opposite ends. But as we mentioned before, instead, gender is much more complex, relative, cultural, and not binary. To quote my favorite feminist geographer, the late Doreen Massey, space is a product of interrelations, always under construction, never closed, static, or immobile. And through the examination of gender, we can better understand the insights into the gendered ways people learn about and interpret the places and spaces they inhabit, both literally and symbolically. Spaces are social as well as physical, and that spaces are never gender neutral. Here by gender, I mean the social constructed relations that define and shape social interactions. And within the intersection of space and gender is power, as spaces themselves can be gendered or gendering. Learning this was quite powerful to me. I think back to my own personal relationships and experiences within space, and I can see now how, at times, I could be a product of the culture I was in. From my experiences as a young geoscientist within a male-dominated environment to becoming a new mom. Think about the gendered expectations you have experienced, maybe due to your family or religious traditions, or the gendered biases of whom is allowed to be in a space. Okay, here's an anecdotal side for example purposes. My female cousins and I still joke about how, when we were growing up in Saskatchewan, we were never allowed to eat at my grandmother's dining room table. That was where the men in our family ate during large family functions, and women and children ate in the kitchen, and how none of us have actually ever eaten off her good china. There are a variety of social constructs and cultural norms that made the situation of a male-only space a reality, and obviously, it is still a story of legend within my family. Now, my 92-year-old Amma, that is what we call her, is progressive in many other ways, and has long been a big support to me and to many others. But I offer this as an example to illustrate how unintentionally spaces can be gendered. But let's get back to the working environment, shall we? For Massey, workplaces are simultaneously, imaginatively, and materially constructed. Politicizing an organization of these social spaces would include addressing their embeddedness in all these distinct yet interlocking maps of power. Gender ideologies and the practices of women and men are central to the ways in which spaces are constructed. When examining topics such as women's economic viability within society, key explorations include 
gender divisions of labor, so the traditional conflict associated with, with the domestic versus work spheres for both women and men, sex-based occupational segregation, the idea that certain jobs are better suited to certain sexes or genders, to the construction of social, geographical, economic, and symbolic barriers in everyday life. Within this discussion, it is important to remember that women and men are positioned differently in society through a variety of intersections, such as gender, social class, their age, their family status, their sexual orientation, and whether or not they're able-bodied, just to mention a few. And no one experiences a space the same. Once again, drawing on Lyndon McDowell, by looking at the social construction of gender, specifically femininity and masculinity, we can examine the construction and maintenance of gender identities in a range of places, circumstances, and geographical scale, from the home to the workplace to the nation, proposing that indeed, gender transfers space and space transforms gender. Okay, I have to say, when it comes to gender stereotypes, one of my biggest pet peeves is when someone says to me, well, traditions are traditions, or I guess that's just the way it is. No! No, it is not. Humans create culture, and humans can change culture. Much of my own research has investigated the workplaces of female STEM professionals. STEM meaning science, technology, engineering, and math, specifically focusing on geoscientists. Workspaces such as these have been traditionally male-dominated, and the spaces they inhabit can exhibit trait, traits that are masculine in nature. As I said before, spaces are social as well as physical, and that spaces are never gender neutral, and spaces themselves can be gendered and gendering. These cultures can be uninviting to those who do not fall on the same spectrum of gender as displayed by the prominent culture. This includes both women and men. Yet this greater discussion is very rarely discussed at an organizational or industry level. That being said, there was a great article last year on women in the trades called Time's Up, Me Too has come to the skilled trades. I will post this in our resource section. A woman tradesperson describes her experience within this working environment and how she would take on the masculine traits and practices of the industry and those around her. She describes a time when she hazed a male apprentice a common practice where she worked, and how horrible she felt when he got so upset that he burst into tears and quit on the spot. She now recognizes that the culture she was in created behaviors in her that she was not happy with. I also suggest that you reference back to our episode six titled, Is it Time for a Me Too Movement in Alberta's Resource Sector? on female geoscientists' experiences of sexual violence within their working environment to help you understand this concept further. I also suggest reading a 2014 book by gender researcher Dr. Dean LaPlange to further deconstruct male-dominated working environments. The book is called So You Think You're Tough? Getting Serious About Gender in Mining. In his book, he explains the masculinized nature of the greater mining industry, specifically focusing on the gendering of the resource industries in Australia and Canada. He explains how, in the mining industry, it is only ever women who are seen to have gender, and gender is only ever discussed as a problem for women. Think about that. 
How common is it to hear an engineer being referred to as a male engineer? Yet many women will tell you how frustrating it is to be referred to as the female engineer. Or maybe as a female manager. This gendering of the workplace culture and organizational systems in all non-traditional work environments are in need for more examination. He challenges all of us to stop looking at women lack in order to fit into the current culture. Instead, we should focus our discussion on the diversity of gender practices and identify what workplaces might be doing to suppress or oppress attracting, retaining a greater diverse population. This ties to my own research into masculinized workspaces. I have found two diverging approaches that professional women have used in varying capacities to tackle gendered working environments. They sit within the theme of fix the women versus change the culture. First, there is a push directed at women to find a ways to fix their behavior to fit or, let's say, assimilate into the current male-dominated environment. This has been magnified by best-selling books such as Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg. Now, I have mentioned before on this podcast how I have many issues with this book by Sandberg. Strategies suggested in this book and by others have centered on self-solutions. And though participants in my research have found these assimilated style strategies beneficial, they prevent a social push in igniting cultural change. One of my research participants said, so if you lean in and you earn money and that income is enough to pay for, say, a cleaning person in childcare, then you are paying for your own equity. Your earning potential has bought your power within the relationship in your home. This is very much a lean-in style self-solution presented to professional women in managing their domestic and work spheres. This gendered individualization of home responsibilities does not help to support community solutions, such as universal childcare for all, and it absolves childcare responsibility from fathers. A section option is to challenge underlying structures affecting workplace culture. In my research, the participants themselves expressed the need for this. A few quotes. I would love to see my professional organization or our technical societies push the agenda on promoting and retaining women in our industry. Another quote. Groups, such as employee research groups or women's groups, need to have a greater influence, but that means that they must be more action-oriented rather than just providing platforms for discussion. Too often, the onus is put on the one who is gendered within a space, so in this situation, women, to make change. As such, women are the problem and the solution, putting women in the position of their own advocates, a task that, without support, is daunting. One of my participants said, whoever has the power, they have to give up power. It has to come from training by, let's say, local groups such as next-gen men to make men comfortable to give up power. Ultimately, it is up to all of us to better understand the gendered spaces we inhabit, how we contribute to long-standing unhealthy gendered practices, and what we each can do to help bring forth systemic change. Whoa, <laughs> that was a lot of talking. I want to thank our listeners for joining me today on this exploration of gendered space. And here's a few key takeaways. 
One, channeling the late feminist geographer Doreen Massey, that spaces are social as well as physical, and spaces are never gender neutral. Spaces themselves can be gendered or gendering. Two, when it comes to gendered stereotypes, never let someone tell you, well, tradition is tradition, or I guess that's just the way it is. Because within space, cultures are socially constructed. As such, these cultures and these spaces can evolve. Three, one's experience within space can be shaped by a variety of factors, such as gender, sexual orientation, race, social class, age, family status, able-bodiedness, and many others. No two people experience space the same. Four, women often face a variety of challenges within society, including an intersection of cultural expectations within overlapping domestic and work spheres. Five, often within masculinized space, such as STEM working environments, it is only ever women who are seen to have gender, and that gender is only ever discussed as a problem for women. Six, we must stop looking at what women lack in order to fit into the current masculinized culture. Instead, focused on greater discussions of diversity and gender practices and identify what spaces, such as workplaces, might be doing to suppress or, or oppress a greater diverse population. Finally, within these masculinized gendered spaces, the onus should not be on women to lead the charge. Those in a position of power must help create long-term systemic change. All right. Well, Marcy will be back with us for our next episode. Until then, don't forget to check our episode notes for resources from this current episode. Once again, you can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Buzzsprout. Please hit subscribe to be notified when our next episodes are released. Also, let's continue the conversation. We'd love to know what you think. You can ask us questions on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, we are always grateful for a five-star rating, as this helps others to find us. Until then, bye.